You're in the water loop. Welcome to Waterloop, the podcast helping water leaders to discover solutions and drive change. I'm the host, Travis Loop. This is episode number 182, Ride on a River, the Anacostia. For a long time, the Anacostia River in Washington, D.C. was nicknamed the Forgotten River due to a lack of investment, heavy pollution, and surrounding low-income neighborhoods. Now, ecological restoration and a development boom have brought attention to the Anacostia. This episode is a ride on the river with Trey Sherrard, Anacostia Riverkeeper. Trey talks about challenges such as environmental racism, toxic sediment, and gentrification, as well as progress on sewer overflows, stormwater controls, and community engagement. Here at the Anacostia River in Washington, D.C., city where I was born, uh, spent a lot of time around this river and this part of the city. Excited to go on a ride today with the riverkeeper for the Anacostia. Uh, it's March 31st, so as is DC fashion, uh, it's a little, little chilly, a little brisk. The temps bounce around. Not the warmest morning for a ride on the river, but that's okay. It's always good to be on the water. A little coffee to help warm up. Uh, Anacostia was, has been called the Forgotten River. The Potomac uh, on the other side of DC has always kind of gotten all the attention, goes by the, the monuments and the White House, and, uh, and it's also been the more you know, affluent side of the city. And for a long time, a long, long time, the Anacostia was just neglected. Um, you know, a, lot, a very urbanized area, uh, surrounded by the lower income communities, disadvantaged communities, and you know, just industry and that kind of thing along the river. Uh, and so it just really suffered. Um, I think like 90% of the pollution in the Anacostia is from stormwater, which is all the runoff from city streets and towns. Um, but the awesome thing is there's kind of been a real uh, rebirth, a real renewed attention on the Anacostia um, in recent years and uh, a lot of people caring for it for an, from an environmental standpoint. And then I'm here in this area uh, along the Anacostia that has been completely revitalized. I mean, there was next to nothing here for a long time. And the Washington Nationals baseball team built their stadium right over here. And it just like led to a, a complete explosion and development here. Um, and you've got like this awesome walkway along the river, public access, uh, the DC water, the water utility for the city put their headquarters here, a beautiful building. You've got the reservoir center right here, which was set up by Xylem as a place for the water sector to come together. Um, gosh, the major league soccer team built their stadium right over there. So it's brought a lot of infusion and, and nice access and everything. There's concern about how much this kind of thing can push out longtime residents and gentrify an area, but uh, it has also bring a, brought attention to the river, so that's that's good. Um, yeah, I'm really excited. Like I said, I'm I'm from D.C. I love getting out on the water. 
We're gonna take a ride on the river, the Anacostia. So we're meeting uh, Trey, he's the river keeper for the Anacostia. I love the river keepers, they know so much. They're so proactive. They're so aggro on taking on the issues. You know, they're kind of like the eyes, the ears, and the mouth for the river, right? They see, they hear what's going on, and they, and they speak for it, so big fan of river keepers. All right, so Anacostia overview, man. Yeah. It's a short river, eight and a half miles, not really long, right? 176 square mile watershed. You know, we're only in parts of two counties in the eastern half of DC. Um, so we do go to Maryland. We have Prince George's County and Montgomery counties. Uh, but it's a small watershed, but it has been dumped on and dumped in and dumped next to for centuries. Uh, so it is way too shallow. You know, we're sitting in a whopping 16 feet of water right now. And historically, it should be more like 40. What's that from? Dirt. Dirt. European, European colonization. Construction, runoff, all that. Just the Tobacco farming first. Really? Yeah. That they would just, they would just cut down the trees. Tobacco is an exhaustive crop, yeah, right? Yeah. And they cut down all the trees and they didn't have fertilizer yet. They weren't necessarily using manure. They didn't have chemical fertilizers with all the troubles that those bring. Mm -hmm. But they were just basically slash and burn agriculture. Mm. And so they slashed their way through every part of this area, this whole region. There's no virgin forest left. This is all Which is true of most of the East Coast, right? Sure. Most of the, even like the wooded areas, right? Forested areas that we think of now are third or fourth generation. See, it's interesting because you think, oh, the, the industrial heavy pollution, this must have been in the 19, you know, back half of the 1900s when all that got going. But it started even early on, just taking down trees to plant Europeans crops. Europeans got here. Wow, okay. So rivers shallower doesn't let it deal with pollution as much right? right solution to pollution is dilution not as much in the anacostia it doesn't have as much capacity right what else? so we were already slow okay. right we were already not a big river it was tidal right so everything goes up and then right back down so only in a big storm is there a really serious flow going down stream on the you know the total the sum like you said move forward to the industrial and now we are not just silting up from tobacco we're now silting up from building a city and building suburbs and then continued suburban expansion into what is now basically right a big metropolis from dc out into the virginia suburbs which doesn't touch us so much but also between here and baltimore as a major corridor and so all of those little villages became towns and are small cities now you think about something like silver spring yeah for instance right and it looks urban it feels urban roadways Houses, parking lots, strip malls. As Trey and I rode along, we passed boathouses and marinas and discussed how the Anacostia has historically been used by local black residents of this part of DC. There are challenges with access, including water too shallow for boats and forces of gentrification highlighting continuing inequalities. Uh, when we get further up the river, we're gonna pass a bunch of boathouses. Majority of the boat slip holders there are black. They're historic boathouses. They represent DC when DC was still majority African-American. Only now those slip holders can't get their boats in and out except at dead high tide because the district and the Army Corps of Engineers have failed to maintain the navigability of this river. Uh, we don't have any commercial shipping. And so while we are a navigable river, and Army Corps has an obligation to maintain that navigation, we always fall off the triage list for budgeting, right? So. Army Corps has an unfunded task to dredge this river, and so it doesn't get done. And, and so those are the people that, that lose access as a result. Right. And so it's an equity issue, right? It's not just, oh, the river is shallow. It's, it's actually a major equity issue. Because the people that have been on this river, using this river, taking an interest in this river for so long, right, 
they're some of the first ones to not get the use of the river. Yeah. And meanwhile, we take off from a nice, shiny new marina down here in a very nice, shiny, heavily gentrified area. The Rowing Club, Anacostia Community Boathouse, many rowing clubs, high schools, colleges, all ages, right? Many leagues with clubs in them, all row out of this house. Okay. Yeah. Right. Next to them, the motor vessels are not part of the rowing community. It's not true. They're not part of this rowing house, though. Those motor vessels in particular, that is Seafarer's Yacht Club. Seafarer's Yacht Club is the oldest black boating organization in the U.S. Wow. Right. They got the lease on that property in 1945. Okay. They are one of the boathouses that cannot get their boats out. The other boat clubs you can see going back down the river are majority black still. The Anacostia is shallower than it should be. The removal of forests and construction of sprawling development in the region filled the river with sediment. And that sediment now holds a variety of toxins. The contaminants spread up the food chain and people that eat fish from the river are at risk. As Trey explains, it is critical to educate people about those dangers and how to protect their health when fishing. The silt comes back to that industrial pollution, right? The silt and all the dirt that's in this river, you know, many, 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 many freight trains full, right? Not only is it an equity issue for navigability, for the historic boathouses that we're coming up to here at Boathouse Row, right? It also happens to be a sink for toxics. So we have several hundred different things that don't dissolve well in water. And so they can move in water a little bit, and that can be biologically impactful on the fish since they breathe with gills. Same way something in the air could be at a low concentration but severely impact us, right? Something at a very low concentration can still be very bioactive and very harmful in the water for something that breathes with gills, which is everything sure. in the water. Yeah. The kicker is that they really like sediment, especially fine-grained sediment. So there's a chemical and a physical attraction. So the doses here in this sediment are not like the Hudson. Um, they're not like some of the sites on the Great Lakes where like the sediment itself, contact with the sediment on a regular basis might hurt you. Mm. The problem is eating the fish. Mm. So for our work, you know, we have kind of two big pillars. We have swimmable and we have fishable. Coming out of the Clean Water Act, you know, 50 years ago last fall, yep. all the waters of the U.S. shall be fishable and swimmable and drinkable where applicable, right? By 1984. Miss that <laughs> so I like to say that the river is getting way less bad. Kicking back to the environmental justice, equity, people that have access, right? Like this, this whole Anacostia, again, more of a historically black area, a lot of lower income area, disadvantaged area. So you talked about how the silt, you know, is impacting access. Now the silt is accumulating toxins. Right. These people in these communities, there's a lot of them that have, would fish, right? And then even eat the fish. There is a huge subsistence angling community here, right? Still is. They're eating the fish. Yeah. And people don't eat the fish for fun, right? They have to. They're eating the fish because they need a protein source and they think it's secure or they maybe know it's kind of not secure and not safe, but also it's better than starving. Um, maybe they don't believe the risks that have been communicated or maybe they actually still haven't had that risk communicated at all yet. So the risks here from fish consumption, all of the toxins, right? Hundreds of PCBs, hundreds more pesticides and the things that pesticides break down into because they're in the sediment and they move through the food chain. So not only do they bioaccumulate, right, in any individual's body over the course of that individual's life, be that a human life or first, first order, right, from the dirt into the worms, 
maybe into the clams, into some of the insect larvae, and then it biomagnifies up the food chain between individuals. So then the worm that's been piling on for its whole little worm life gets eaten by a small fish. That small fish doesn't eat that one worm, right? It eats thousands of worms before it gets eaten by a medium fish that eats thousands of the small fish. And then it gets eaten by a big fish that eats thousands of those medium fish. And now we're at a thousand times a thousand times a thousand. I could definitely eat a thousand fish or more in my lifetime. And if you're eating those fish from a toxic area, right? Now you have a thousand times a thousand times a thousand times a thousand. Obviously there's efforts underway to educate people, right? Uh, about <laughs> don't eat the fish or only eat X number of fish. And then I know there's a lot of different languages spoke to Spanish. DC has five official languages. Five official languages. I didn't even yeah. know that. Wow. Yeah. Um, so you've got to be able to communicate with people in those different languages too. So we've, we've been getting a lot better at communicating with people in Spanish. Um, that's the next kind of biggest linguistic chunk of the population, not just in DC, but especially actually up in Montgomery County and Prince George's County, yeah. as far as our watershed is concerned. Um, and they were really just getting missed. You know, people were not reaching out to that community very well. Uh, so there are a lot of new groups. There's a group called Defensores de la Cuenca. There's a group called uh, Eco Latinos. Uh, there's a couple other ones that are starting to pop up, nonprofits that are deliberately stepping into that gap and filling it. And so these groups, primarily African-American and Hispanic, are eating a lot of the fish. And that's just not safe. Um, another thing that we did to try to communicate that risk is we started Friday night fishing. So this will be its 11th summer in 2023. Uh, it's going to be every Friday, 5 to 8 p.m., right in front of the baseball stadium. Okay. So on that floating dock over there. And we provide the stuff. We have all the gear. We provide people to help you, volunteers and staff. And so it doesn't matter if you don't know how to fish or if you haven't fished since you were 10, whatever it is, right? If you want to come fish, we're here to help you fish and learn how to fish and teach you catch and release. Ah, right, right, right. Because if I walk up to somebody on the side of the river and I'm telling them, I'm interrupting their fishing, right? Like most yeah. people come to fish to get away from people. Time, yes. <laughs> they don't want to be... <laughs> looking, looking at somebody, they really don't want to be looking at somebody that doesn't look like them, huh? lecturing them, yeah. right, about, oh, by the way, this is maybe kind of dangerous for your family and maybe you shouldn't feed them this. So the district did something very brave um, five or six years ago, the last time they updated their advisory, they, uh, they said, do not eat striper, mm. striped bass, Period. right? That's a big deal in the that's Chesapeake that's Bay. That's a big, big deal. That's a very big deal. That's, that's one of the most popular fish to go catch, to go eat. You get those rockfish tacos everywhere and all that stuff. Chesapeake sleigh ride. Right. Wow. So they did that. They tested. Uh, they got a couple striper in one of their surveys, and they submitted them with the other fish for toxics testing, and they came back red hot for PCBs and other things. So they said, all right, that's not enough to make this big political move on. Uh, we are going to test more. And they spent basically a whole other year testing just catching and testing just striper. And they almost all came back red hot. Huh. Wow. In the so Anacostia or Anacostia? Anacostia and Potomac, both. Got it, yeah. Yeah, this is a district-wide uh, advisory. The leading source of pollution to the Anacostia is now the stormwater that flows from D.C. and suburban Maryland off roads, roofs, and parking lots. This runoff also carries a lot of trash into the river. Green infrastructure that captures stormwater where it falls has been employed, especially by the district, to improve water quality in the Anacostia. Stormwater is a pollutant in its own right, right? Just the volume of that water 
the temperature, usually hot, of that water, right? Even before you talk about all of the contaminants, because it is also a vehicle for contamination of the river. So stormwater is a pollutant in its own right. Some states don't recognize that, but it is. Then the amount of stormwater is a pollutant and a problem in its own right. And then you have everything it's bringing down. Sometimes it brings down trash cans. Pretty sure that's a whole city trash can right there. Trash is a great proxy for stormwater, right? We can't see stormwater except when it's turbid and cloudy or when it's carrying sewage, very fun, or with the trash. So when you look at the shoreline right now, we're in a completely natural area, right? Yeah. And there is just nothing but plastic up there. Yeah, you can see the bottles and everything that's just been built up. 60% of all of the trash on this river is plastic bottles. Stormwater is still getting worse and worse and worse. Yeah. Right? Baywide, we are seeing more and more woods and meadows torn down and replaced with suburban and city environments, yeah. right? Expanding highways, widening highways, paving all kinds of things, right? And the more we pave, the more that stormwater comes off. Yeah. Even if we stopped paving right now, we're going to have decades minimum of worse stormwater pollution because our storms are changing. Yep, right. more intense rainfalls. This region in the Mid-Atlantic does not expect more rainfall per year, but we expect more rainfall per storm in less storm events, right? So we're gonna have longer periods of drought or half drought, and then boom, big storm. So and then drought, and then boom, big storm, right? So that means that all of the infrastructure that we have in good actor jurisdictions, like the district, like the counties in Maryland, right? Where they are doing green infrastructure, they are taking steps. They have programs like River Smart Homes and River Smart Communities in DC, They've got rain check and rainscapes in the counties in Maryland. And that's put that those are all programs to put in like little they green infrastructure projects. So soak, soak the rain in instead of letting the rain shoot off property. Exactly. Yeah. Put a rain barrel on. Yeah. Maybe a cistern. Yeah. Put in a little rain garden. Put in trees. That's been a big trees are the best green infrastructure you can imagine, right? They're the original green infrastructure. Uh, and they have these programs. But a lot of those practices are being sized, right, for an 90th percentile storm that is no longer the 90th percentile storm, right? Our storms are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Is there an effort to do more retrofitting, if you will, especially in these hyper-dense urban areas yeah. in a way that benefits the Anacostia? Yeah. Yeah. DC has been leading that um, on private land and on uh, government properties, right? There's a lot of park service property here, a lot yeah, of district property. Federal land. Yeah. yeah. Green roofs. Um, the, the district, their stormwater is mostly getting a lot better. Our ride upriver took us to a stunning two-mile stretch, largely free from development, a bit of an oasis in the middle of the nation's capital. Trey and I took this time to reflect on the history and value of the Anacostia. This is two miles of the Anacostia River, looking upstream as we came around that bend. No roads across it, no bridges, no buildings, right? In the middle of DC, yeah. there is a two mile stretch of river, which is by no means untouched. You have seawalls on both sides. Yeah, that's interesting. But which is visually wild. Yes. You're a 25 minute walk to that bridge from two different metro stops, right? And then you can look out at this. Kingman Island is man-made, right? It was a dumping ground. 
for, for trash. trash and then for sediment. The Army Corps built the island on purpose when they dredged out all that mud from Kingman Lake and they lumped it on the outside of the wetland and created Kingman Island. So again, they did some major ecological damage, right? Wiping out wetlands. We have almost no wetlands left in this watershed. Most of the wetlands we have are either tiny fringing ones, like you can see right here, right? You can see last year's cattails. But we don't have those big wetlands that we really should in an area that's in the coastal plain of the mid-Atlantic. Right. Uh, this should be a big, massive tidal freshwater wetland. All the stuff you've been talking about is just like examples of injustice piled on top of injustice, on top of injustice, mismanagement, stupid decisions uh, that set the Anacostia up to be in such poor shape. Not the same kind of things that happened on the Potomac River on the other side, right? right. Where the affluence is and the monuments and all that kind of stuff. Right. So, and that's all the Forgotten River, isn't that like the nickname oh, for yeah, the Anacostia? Yeah. Because it's kind of like, who cares about what's happening over on that side of the city? Now you have all that development happening, right? Where the National Stadium is, you got the Major League Soccer Team Stadium, you got all that crazy housing. Is there concern about that gentrification and... Gentrification is a major problem on this river, right? Because if I go into a community meeting and say, hey, we want your support for this project, and someone says, usually someone of color, if I'm in Northeast or Southeast, and someone of color says, why, if I make it nice, I'm gonna get kicked out. I have literally nothing to say to that besides, yes, that's very possible, and we're seeing it happen already, right? So it's actually a perverse incentive against ecological uplift and restoration, right? And they're not wrong. You know, we see gentrification just happening anyway, even before you do that. So that gentrification is funding and helping drive a lot of restoration, but you see gentrification as a result of restoration too. And it is a major, major problem. One of the great success stories for the Anacostia is the reduction of sewer overflows. Instead of untreated wastewater entering the river after heavy rainfall, now large tunnels capture billions of gallons of that sewage and send it to a treatment plant. The river has benefited. The three hole outfall on the left is the old outfall. The much longer mini hole outfall here with a nice stonework on the right. This is the new one and this is a major bypass point for DC Waters Clean Rivers Tunnel. Behind this is a, a vortex facility. It spins the water and the sewage to try to catch some of the trash sticks, solids, before it goes into the tunnel system. Um, so this is also some giant trash screening devices buried back here inside the um, engineering tunnel. Runs about 100 feet below grade for many miles. So the tunnel that opened in March 2018, five years and like two weeks ago, right, starts here, runs all the way down to Blue Plains Wastewater Treatment Plant in the far south corner of the diamond of DC. Uh, the way it works is that previously, Lincoln era infrastructure, when we finally got sewers at all in DC, right, instead of creeks that got carved into canals, that got treated as open sewers, and then got closed, right? James Creek, Tiber Creek, all these creeks that were here and you can't see anymore. A lot of hidden waterways. It's another very cool topic, by the way. There's some good like story maps for it here if you're interested in chasing it down more. Um, 
they built combined sewers, right? That was the first round of sewers in the US. So in the late 1800s, would have been earlier, but we got busy with the Civil War, right? By the time they picked up the pieces from that, it was late 1800s, even into early 1900s when they were developing combined sewers across the country. The combined sewer combines the storm water from the storm drains with the toilet water and everything else coming out of a building's sewer system, right? So the sanitary and the storm are combined. Uh, that's the middle third of DC. It's about 22, 23 square miles, of which about 15 square miles drain to the Anacostia by way of sewer sheds. Previously to the tunnel, right, there were 19 outfalls from here down, just in the last three miles of the river, where you've got a big pipe under the street, right, and there's 19 of these little laterals. And the laterals spew untreated human sewage mixed with stormwater runoff and all the things it carries, oil, grease, parts of the brakes, dog crap that didn't get picked up, trash, sediment, right, et cetera, et cetera, into the river pretty much every time it rained. They built this tunnel so that now, between the sewer line and the outfall, coming off of these laterals is a usually about a 100-foot deep drop shaft. That drop shaft drops into the tunnel. The tunnel is two stories tall, right? That's from me to the bow of the boat. If you put one of these boats on either side of us, right, and drew that circle, 24 feet internal diameter. Huge. It's astonishing, yeah. astonishing work. I'm hoping that they'll do when they open the next section, which opens this summer, the Northeast Boundary Trunk. I'm hoping that they will let people in to see the tunnel again, in which case you should make sure to get here. Yeah. So now that sewage that drops in there, right, it has a fixed diameter on the drops. So if it comes too fast, Remember, we talked about the climate change impacts. One of those impacts is that the storms are going to hit harder, mm -hmm. more rain in the same limited period of time, right? So there will be sewage coasting over the top of that drop when the rain hits very hard. But that thing was projected to reduce combined sewer volume from D.C. into the Anacostia by 80%. It's actually landed about 90%. Awesome. Yeah. That's really, really right? good. Yes. That's huge. Let's keep 90% of the raw sewage. Just in time. We don't expect average annual rainfall to go up in this region with climate change, right? Just punchier and punchier storms when it does rain. But in 2018, we shattered a 100-plus-year-old record for rain starting in April. So the tunnel opened in March, and it opened just in time. The tunnel is designed, right, that 80% projection would have been two of the two and a half b -b 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 billion gallons of combined sewage dumped into this river every year. Wow. Instead of catching 2 billion gallons in 2018, it caught four. That's amazing. It rained that hard. Five and a half feet of rain in this region in 2018, in DC specifically. More rain in the suburbs and in other wetter parts of Maryland, yeah. right? But it kept 4 billion gallons of untreated sewage, stormwater, whatever, trash. trash out of the river. Yep. Major success. And then so there's still more CSO tunnel, sorry, more tunnels. There's a new tunnel that they finished mining about a year ago. They've been dressing it and testing it since then. That's supposed to come into service. That's the Northeast Boundary Trunk Sewer. Mm -hmm. And that should come into service this year, summer of 2023. And that's going to get another chunk of that. So right. that was projected to take it another 18%, okay. right? So we are hoping since this first one was 90%, that we will see no overflows at all in a dry year. And then if we get a hurricane, limited overflows there. The Blue Plains treatment plant can pumps up the sewage out of the tunnel, 
when they have capacity again, as the storm abates or it's dry weather again, um, they can pump that tunnel. The current section, I think they can pump it out in two days. As we were heading back to the dock, Trey and I spoke about the role of community members in testing water quality. The collected data is quickly shared and helps people make decisions about using the Anacostia. Significant improvements in water quality have even raised the idea that swimming in the river could be allowed in the future. That would be a bright chapter in the history of the Anacostia. We train up over 100 volunteers, right? On any given year, we've been doing it for five years now. Yeah. Uh, so we will be sending our new crew of volunteers out starting in May, every Wednesday in the district, every other Wednesday in Montgomery County and Prince George's County, where we've expanded the program. Yeah. And they scoop water. And they scoop that water. They take some observations, right? They note how many people are recreating on the water and how they're recreating. But they take that scoop of water in a sterile container, cap it, bring it to us. We run it for E. coli. We have an EPA-approved testing mechanism. All right, we use the, the call alert system and we can have that data out the next day. So we send our volunteers out on Wednesday, just in case it rains on Wednesday, they can go out Thursday instead, right? We get the data Thursday or Friday. We put that out on socials and on our website, we have a whole portal for it. We give it to the district. We put it on the Chesapeake Monitoring Cooperative. We put it on an app called Swim Guide that's free to use and founded by another waterkeeper, Lake Ontario. Yeah, shout out Mark Matson up there. Yes, sir. Yeah. For the, your audience that maybe has data or has thought about testing but hasn't, right? This becomes another place to, to put it out there. They count how many views you get. So you now have metrics for your funders, right? Yeah. Yeah. An agency can put the data up. A nonprofit can put the data up. We are the one who controls the data for the Anacostia River. We have all of these things that are actually starting to happen. And it's this amazing turnaround. It's exciting. And it's like, Right, it can actually change. Yeah. We can see change happen, and this is what it can look like. We're seriously looking at swimmable, like really seriously. Yeah. Some of the spots last year passed often, like 70, 80, 90% of the time. Wow. When that tunnel comes online, we expect that to get even better. Sure. I know they're fighting for, uh, on the Potomac side, you know, they're fighting to, to get that restriction on swimming really changed or yeah. designate some places where you can do it, right? Gonna... That's a tough slog. So, the district is the only jurisdiction where it is illegal to swim, right? But because it is officially illegal to swim, the district will have to officially change that law. And if they officially change that law before it's safe, they will have officially put people in danger. <laughs> got it. So they got to tread, gonna be, tread carefully there. It's going to be a, you know, what we think is feasible first, right? But once we can document that this or that site is consistently meeting the safe swimming standards, then we can maybe create a little bubble, right? It'll still be banned district-wide at the time, but we'll get an open at this site, or this site is open for swimming. And then, right, as things keep getting better, we'll see it step up to a full removal of the ban, finally. Always gonna be on the water, a little chilly for my liking, but had to gut it out. Tons of good info, this guy. I don't know how these river keepers like Trey know so much stuff, but uh, yeah, really good deal. Great trip. Looking forward to my next ride on a river. Great awesome tour. time, man. Always glad. Thanks for the ride out on the water. Uh, look forward to coming back when it's warmer, but hey, you know. Absolutely. Toughed it out and uh, I learned a ton. That's the main thing, so. Thanks for coming out. I look forward to seeing this out and big audience. Yeah, for sure, man. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to the podcast. To find all episodes, sign up for email updates, and connect on social media, visit waterloop.org. You're in the Waterloop. Thank you.